Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched Nicholas Winding Refn's beloved 2011 film Drive, starring Ryan Gosling as a stuntman who moonlights as a getaway driver, and Carey Mulligan as the young women with whom he becomes infatuated. The cast also features Brian Cranston, Albert Brooks and Oscar Isaac, and Refn won the prize for directing at the Cannes Film Festival that year. Thank you so much to Patreon subscriber Joshua for requesting this film. Obviously, this movie is iconic, extremely influential, much copied, very talked about in the kind of couple of years after it came out and beloved for various factors, but primarily the music, which is like a really big deal. And it's kind of known for its extreme but restrained level of violence combined with a really tender love story. I think we're going to have a lot to talk about today. Uh, this was actually my first time re-watching it since 2011, and I remember being really wowed at the time when I, at that point, wasn't like regularly watching indie films. When I logged this on Letterboxd, which has all of the information about what I was watching for like the past 10 years, because I'm an erotic freak, I watched this three times in 2011 to 2012, like the year <laughs> around which it came out. And I had, but I hadn't seen it since then. And it was just like such an adrenaline rush to watch it again. I remembered it pretty well, though certain details had escaped me. For instance, I had literally zero memory of Brian Cranston being in this movie, despite the fact that it was like peak breaking bad season when it came out. So like, I definitely would have been aware of him, but that was gone from my brain. But like, Basically everything that happened to the movie I remembered, but just like the sensory experience of watching it after almost 10 years, I was just like, this movie fucking rules. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very excited to talk about it. I tweeted about watching it like an hour ago and many people replied being like, I'm so excited for this episode. And I was like, yes, this movie has fans. So I think that this will be fun. This was definitely a movie that immediately came out when we were in college or like just after. And I was still young enough at the time to be like, oh my God, this movie's so great when it came <laughs> out. So I feel very fondly toward it for that reason. And I was very into Ryan Gosling at the time also. So first, I mean, it just goes on and on. Like the, this was directly targeted at me in 2011 and I received it enthusiastically. And with me watching it with the wisdom of age now, I was like, Oscar Isaac? Because of course, I did not know who Oscar mm -hmm. Isaac was in 2011. <laughs> and it's kind yeah. of fascinating to see him in this really small role, which also has an interesting background. We will obviously talk about the casting later in the podcast. But um, yeah, interesting kind of just as he was breaking out, like there was this period when he was really prolific and he was doing a mix of like trashy blockbuster roles and really small indies like that. And then kind of gradually, you know, climbed over the next decade. Well, he basically... Or plateaued. Actually, he, he gradually plateaued. <laughs> I mean, what basically happened is two years after this, he has Inside Lewin Davis and, like, explodes, but not in a way that is, like, he's suddenly getting all the best roles. It's just that the film critics are like, Oscar Isaac is the best actor, suddenly. So I saw... I had seen this movie and saw Inside Lewin Davis in 2013 and was like, this man is like the future of cinema and had no memory of him being in this movie, even though I had obviously 
watched it three times. But yeah, it was quite surreal to watch it with him being like a famous person in my mind. He's very, very good in this film. It's just not a major part. I mean, we were just talking about this with Far From Heaven a couple weeks ago. Viola Davis has a like tiny supporting role in that movie. And you're like, Viola da- Davis, what? But, you know, that's what happens when you're trying to make it as an actor. So why don't we start, as we often do, with the sort of background for how this movie came into being. I was reading a little interview with the screenwriter, uh, Hossein Amini, about the sort of development process of the film, which was pretty interesting because you don't always hear about who kind of was attached and then wasn't attached anymore. Yeah, this is a really fun one because the image of this film, which was very well promoted and of course well-loved because it's good, but the image is very much like indie darling and like the vision of Nicholas Winding Refn. And it's like, this is a movie where like someone snapped up the rights to a book that they thought was cool. And then, you know, went around as producers do, trying to find like directors who would do it. And, you know, there was a period where they were going to have Hugh Jackman star in it and it probably would have been more of an action movie. And, you know, there's been an evolutionary process over the kind of late 2000s period. <laughs> yeah. So the novel is by James Salas, who's not a writer I'm familiar with. And the producers who optioned it, I guess, sent it to Hassan Amini, whose career sort of started out. I was born in Iran and then moved to London when he was around 10. And his career in the 90s started out with like sort of prestige adaptations of like big 19th, early 20th century novels. So the movie that I know him from, apart from this, is the adaptation of Henry James's The Wings of the Dove, which Helena stars Helena Carter, Carter mm. which is an incredible movie that could not be more different from this film. Like, you would never know that the same person had written both of them, except that, like, they're both good. And then I think after he had some successes in that arena, he wound up doing more, like, big Hollywood stuff, including some action-y type movies of which this wound up being one. And so then he's pitching it to people, including Hugh Jackman, which is just, I mean, hilarious to consider. I think Hugh Jackman is a great actor, but this would be horrible. (laughs) It would just not be good. But he was attached for a while. And then Neil Marshall, the director... Yeah, Neil Marshall used to be one of my faves. He did many a fun horror film. And uh, <laughs> he has been he was embroiled in one of the most epic sex scandals of the more recent years, which involved him fleeing offset mid-shoot with his current girlfriend, who was the former mistress of a studio executive. It was a big, juicy scandal. <laughs> I, I do remember this. The man who destroyed Hellboy is who I think he's probably known as at this point. <laughs> Yeah, he did that recently. He did Doomsday, Centurion. I mean, look, it's good to have your niche, but like, this would also be a worse movie if he had directed it. I feel not really a good fit for him. I I can see why that didn't one that one didn't go forward. (laughs) Yeah. So eventually, it winds up with Nicholas Wending Refn, who before this movie was probably best known in the United States slash like the Anglophone film world for directing the movie Bronson with. Tom Hardy, which was a very kind of impressionistic biopic of Charles Bronson, which I think I watched after Inception came out, if I remember correctly, because all of a sudden Tom Hardy was like, yeah, it was like slightly pre-fame Tom Hardy. 
Yeah. And it's uh, like he gives a big sort of wild performance in that movie. And I don't remember it super well because I saw it like 10 years ago. But I remember thinking it was kind of like didn't totally work, but was interesting and very stylistic. And it's got this like, again, big performance in the center of it. The only other movie that he had made before this one that I had heard of at all was something with Mads Mikkelsen that you have seen most of. I can't even think of the title. Yeah, it's Valhalla Rising, which is a sort of action-adventure Viking film with no particular attachment to history. I, as you know, am a passionate fan of Maz Mikkelsen. And as we may have mentioned on this podcast before, his filmography is deeply chaotic. He's always (laughs) tremendous. The stuff he is in is completely all over the place. And I found this film so kind of unpleasant that I stopped watching Basically, Nicholas Winting Refn is really interested in violence and most of his films are pretty extreme. The one that he made immediately after Drive was Only God Forgives, which also starred Ryan Gosling. And I remember going to see that film being really excited because I was like, oh, okay, same team's back together. And I really was just like, this is not, I mean, it's not very good. It's like very sort of over the top. And he'd really sort of leaned into this neon sort of very flashy aesthetic that also didn't have any substance and it was a bit of a bummer so my view of Mr. Refn is not particularly high even though this film that we're discussing today is very impressive. Well what's so funny about him I was saying to you before we started recording I feel like I have a very strong opinion about like his career even though I have seen only two of his movies and not anything since this one I didn't see Only God Forgives He then, after that, did The Neon Demon with Elle Fanning, which is about, like, models and also is just, like, (laughs) hyper-violent. I did not watch that either. Yeah. Because why would I watch that? And then he recently had some TV series on Amazon with Miles Teller that, like, everything about that sounds appalling to me. Like, no, 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 no. no. Well, there was also, he did a documentary about himself where... His wife was filming him like while he was, I think, making and promoting Only God Forgives. And basically it was just a documentary about how terrible he is to live with. (laughs) He has like really strong wanker energy in a lot of ways. Oh yeah, (laughs) big time. And so I really have had zero interest in like anything he's done since this movie. And it very much seems like the stuff he's doing is just, he has no impulse control is my impression again not having seen any of this in terms of like the violence the sort of indulgence of the aesthetic whatever and then you watch drive and this way it treats violence which we will talk about in more detail when we really get into the plot is so smart and just like the direction of the film is so precise and compact like there's just no sort of like fluff or fat on it it's like an hour and a half long the action sequences are so perfect and you just think like how did this happen and it really is like even a broken clock is right twice a day right and like everything kind of just came together and I have no confidence that he'll ever make a good movie again but it happened once which is more than most people can say so you know congratulations but um kind of mysterious I mean, it was fascinating to just see kind of the introductory sequence because 
Uh, there were obviously some parts of this film that were really burned into my mind, like the elevator kiss and like the hammer scene and various other parts. But I hadn't really remembered the um, the introduction. And I think also a side note on this, neither of us can drive. <laughs> no. So like, I mean, it's about, as to me, I'm like, sure, this is like driving a, sh- a spaceship or whatever. And um, as Morgan has noted in our little informational planning document, uh, the, the writer and director also could not drive when they made this film, which I love. You do not need to know how to do stuff to uh, to make a film about it. But the first kind of five minutes of this film are Ryan Gosling's, the unnamed driver, ferrying this group of criminals off to do a burglary. And he tells them, you know, like, you've got five minutes, you have this five minute window, I'll wait for you and then I'll take you out. And then you see him doing the getaway drive. And it's just so kind of well articulated. Obviously, the character throughout the film barely speaks, like he's a very quiet person. But it's just fantastic sort of visual storytelling in this sequence at the beginning, because you kind of see the way you see kind of the strategy behind his getaway driving in a far more impactful way than the sort of traditional action sequences we get for driving movies, which are all about sort of speed and impact and danger. And with this, you see how he's, you know, he knows precisely how everything works. It's like he's conducting an orchestra or like taking apart a clock or something. He has this police radio, so he knows when to like pause his car and hide behind certain things. And he knows when to be really fast. And he never shows any signs of stress whatsoever, even though these burglars who are in the back are like shitting themselves with fear. You get such a good idea of that person's character and how weird they are. And this really is like, it's a it's a neo-noir film in terms of genre for sure. But it also falls into the category of just like weird guy films where you just pick like a super specific <laughs> character and you can build what is in general. Like th- the story of the film is like a very straightforward kind of crime drama that we've seen a million times before. Just very kind of well characterized. And this guy in the middle, even though on paper, you're just like, oh, he's good at driving. Like it's just kind of so well done in a way that you haven't seen before in a really oversaturated genre. Well, in the interviews that Ryan Gosling did for the movie, he said he had just come off of doing Blue Valentine. And we should say one of the really interesting things about this film and part of the reason I think that it was kind of such an exciting movie at the time, apart from like it being great, is that this was definitely like the peak of Ryan Gosling movie star, right? So he got his first Oscar nomination in in 2006 for this tiny little indie movie, Half Nelson, which is great. So that's five years before this. And then one year before this uh, is the movie Blue Valentine, which Michelle Williams gets nominated for and he doesn't, but that movie is like a big deal. And in terms of like critical reception, and he's fantastic in it, as is she. And what he said in this interview that I read was that, like, that movie was largely improvised and he talks a ton in it. So he just done that and was kind of like, I just don't want to like talk in this <laughs> film. And on the set of Drive, they were constantly going through the screenplay and realized that a lot of the dialogue written for him, they were like, well, he just like, doesn't need to say this. Like, it, you can convey all of this without him talking. I would be so curious to see a like early draft of this movie to see what was on the page because as you said he really has almost no dialogue and you get such a clear sense of who this person is without him having to talk basically at all 
and this movie comes out within a month or two of Crazy Stupid Love, which is the first movie he basically ever did that's just like straight comedy that I can recall. Certainly there hadn't been anything for a long time. And so on the one hand, he's got like this big comedy movie where he's by far the best thing in it. And then also this action drama type thing where he's virtually not speaking. And the contrast between those two things, I think elevated both of them in terms of like making him look better. Right. I think that when people want to sort of, dismiss him often what they'll do is be like well ryan gosling just like doesn't talk in his movies what? and just like <laughs> i didn't really know serious. there were uh, ryan gosling dismissers is this because he yeah. did the notebook <laughs> and i just think that's i mean people love ryan gosling obviously but i've definitely seen that sentiment and it just seems really silly to me because a he does these comedies where he's very talky and is very good in them but also if you watch this movie he doesn't say very much but he is doing so much with his face like I think this is an incredible performance and the movie I think would still be fun if he weren't that compelling because it's the whole thing is really well made but in order for it to really work you have to have someone great in the center of it because otherwise you would just be like this guy's like a sociopath like (laughs) what I also like his physicality also plays a really really big role because you know, if you had a Hugh Jackman looking guy in that role, it would be such a different vibe. But kind of the whole point of Ryan Gosling, like the whole appeal of Ryan Gosling physically is that he looks really non-threatening. He has this quite soft face. He has these big puppy dog eyes and he's very narrow in this film. Like when you see him when he's not wearing his main jacket, which really sort of bulks him up, there's a scene where he's just wearing like a denim jacket and you're like, oh, he's got like really narrow shoulders. He's quite a slight person. And Carrie Mulligan is all obviously tiny. So like if you have this guy who's like not that big, he's really soft and non-threatening, it makes the contrast like even more extreme when you start when they start to explore his violent side in the second half of the film. And that's an extremely unusual vibe like this sort of lack of masculine aggression you know which is what invariably you get in you know noir and neo-noir fiction yes and i think it totally makes sense that she finds him appealing because his whole all his energy as you're describing is just like quite nice and non-threatening and when the violence does start to happen, you get a sense that he's kind of performing it for himself almost in a way that's quite interesting. Um, As we said at the top, his sort of like day job is that he works as a stuntman in movies. He also works as an auto mechanic, like part-time, but he'll do like the dangerous stunt driving stuff in movies. And so there's this tension in the film between reality and fiction and also sort of the performance of masculinity and violence. And when he does begin to take on this violent sort of persona, he does it in a really almost like too theatrical way, right? Because you get the sense that that's kind of what he has in his head of like, this is how you behave in these situations. And even his little spiel about like, you have five minutes and this is what we're going to do. And like, if you're not back, I'm going to leave. It's effective, but it feels very performed. Right. 
And that is totally destructive because he winds up doing really, really horrible things in the second half of the movie, which, like, you should do. <laughs> it's not like he's just wildly, you know, behaving completely on his own. Like, the circumstances are also bad, but you should not kick a guy's head in in, in an elevator. Like, that's I mean, not great behavior. I mean, he has an extremely unnatural capacity for violence. Yeah. His response to panic is to brutally torture and murder people. <laughs> yes. And it's also, like, challenging the audience, right? Because we, like Carrie Mulligan, have been sort of infatuated with him for the first half of the movie because the movie wants you to feel that way and then show him like violently murdering people in the second half. And you're like, Hmm, uh, this is bad, but why don't we talk about the casting situation? Yeah. So in like the years after this film came out, I think people became a bit more like, obviously there was so much interest about it that people kind of, uh, people kind of became more familiar with, what happened sort of in the creative process about this. And there's definitely been some sort of criticism of the way kind of the characters were racialized in like the original vision for this. Because I think in the book, the Irene character, the love interest, who is a young mother who lives near the protagonist, I think she was originally a Latina character. And Nicholas Winding Refn basically auditioned loads of Latina actresses and was like, oh, I just couldn't find anyone I like found sympathetic and correct in that role and it's like I remember having read interviews with him where I just it just sounded extremely sus and then with Oscar Isaac's character he appears halfway through the film because obviously for the first kind of act of this very chaste romance between Ryan Gosling and Irene she's essentially a a single mother because her husband is in jail but then he comes out of jail for the crime he committed, which isn't really gone into in any particular detail, but it's like, you know, he got involved in not like murder, like there was embezzling in his restaurant or whatever. But like he comes back and he's kind of the the romantic rival and he's definitely like possessive, but he's not like a nasty guy, right? When Oscar Isaac did interviews about this movie, he was obviously really polite about it, but it was quite clear that he had a lot of input in fleshing out this character into someone who was like less of a racial stereotype. Yeah, there were quotes that he did, gave and like an interview a few years later um, when he was talking about the X-Men movie he did actually and uh, discussing what a fucking nightmare was to make that movie. Uh, the famous movie where they had to redub all of his dialogue because they put him in a big plastic squeaky suit so no one could hear what he was saying. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> So he said he met Nicholas Winding Refn after reading the script and he said, I was actually coming to tell him that I wasn't going to do the movie. When I read the script, I remember feeling that the character standard was standard. When he said, well, if it could be anything you wanted, what would it be? So we sat there for four hours in this restaurant and we just went through it and kind of spitballed and came up with all these ideas, which like to reference credit, the character in the, in the movie, I think totally works. So at least he was flexible, you know. He's really collaborative and he will let people go yeah. with like their ideas. And I think, I mean, it, it was sort of against surreal watching this now knowing who Oscar Isaac is because he's not in the movie very much, but I think he's really, really good in it. And I think the fact that he's so good and obviously had input into the character helps enormously because he never feels like 
when he sort of shows up again, you as the audience are like, oh man, no, because you've become invested in the relationship between Gosling and Mulligan. And obviously he's not thrilled that his wife has been like spending all her time with this dude who looks like Ryan Gosling, which like is understandable. But he really feels like a specific real person and not like a caricature, which again, I like totally credit Oscar Isaac for this based on what we know about the movie now. And I mean, I assume most people listening to this have seen the film, so I will spoil what happens to him. Like, he dies pretty quickly thereafter in um, an attempted robbery of a pawn shop that he's sort of forced to undertake because he owes money from the sort of protection racket in prison. And it feels really tragic that this happens to him as opposed to, like, aha, yes, the rival's out of the way, right? And Ryan Gosling was trying to help him with that because he's trying to protect Irene and their son. So I think all of that winds up actually working really well in the movie. I think the casting of Carrie Mulligan and not a Latina actress is just like profoundly embarrassing for the film and for Refn. I think it's less a problem in terms of the actual like text of the movie because I think Mulligan is very good and what they wind up actually doing with the characters feels again like pretty specific, even though it's under this sort of almost like fairy tale framework, which is again how they were sort of referring to it in um, interviews. But once you know about the casting situation, it's like, well, but this is horrible. Like you should yeah. not have done this. I mean, I found the love triangle really interesting, kind of when I was rewatching because. I had exactly the same experience as you, which is that you automatically, you know, you don't like the Oscar Isaac character. Like that's the entire function of this type of uh, of love triangle. And you do kind of get the impression at first, you're like, yeah, Ryan Gosling is, you know, a better prospect to use some Jane Austen-ish kind of terms because there's this great little dinner scene where you do get a genuinely good impression of Oscar Isaac's character. Like he's a fairly nice guy. He's good to his kid. He wants to do right by his family but there's this dinner scene where they're kind of talking about how he and Carrie Mulligan's character Irene got together and he like misremembers that she was underage at the time like clearly there was not much of an age gap but it's like oh she was like 17 instead of 19 and then like they had the they had their child like a year later so it was a teen pregnancy and they can't you know they've been together for I guess like eight years that's about how old the kid is but he's been in jail for part of that time and it's kind of partly a relationship of circumstance and you can see how even though it's not like a terrible relationship like she might well be better off with Ryan Gosling but then obviously as the story progresses Ryan becomes embroiled in this very intense criminal scheme where he's trying to like fish Irene and her son out of this problem which is partly caused by Oscar Isaac's character and is also embroiled in like this criminal enterprise that Ryan Gosling's boss at the auto shop is involved with and it becomes very violent and leads to Oscar Isaac's death and this is the point where Ryan Gosling just goes completely off the rails and ends up very brutally murdering some people usually in self-defense but in like very intense ways and by the time you get to like the crux point in the third act of the film from the perspective of Carrie Mulligan's character, it's like, yeah, like this isn't 
sweet like the tone of their relationship is so sweet and romantic by the time you get to that point I'm like oh she's just ended up with like basically the same guy twice which is this like quite nice sweet guy who turns out to be like very embroiled in violent crime because that is how Oscar Isaac ends up dying in the end but like Ryan Gosling's more dangerous and that kind of raises this question of like is it actually realistic to be involved in this really romantic relationship with a guy who's essentially a white knight figure in the he is willing to go to the ends of the earth for you. But morally speaking, is that even a good thing? Like, probably not. Just because he's not treating you badly, he's still murdering, like, a bunch of people, um, which is kind of where it enters the fairy tale zone. Well, and this is what's so interesting about the film to me, is how it, as I was saying, like, implicates the audience, right? Both in terms of, like, getting invested in the romance, even though you kind of said, even from the beginning, that this is, like, not gonna work out. But also, I remember being really fascinated at the time by the violence in the sense that I think, and again, reference, the rest of reference filmography is so not doing this at all. So I feel like it's kind of an accident, but it kind of invites you to participate in the spectacle of the violence in a voyeuristic way, right? Like I remember seeing this in the theater and everyone was really into it. Like, it's really gory. I just remember being super disturbed. I don't remember what the audience thought. Because, like, the hammer oh, scene, the I audience... was like, it was, like, horrifying. <laughs> yeah. The audience I saw it with, and I include myself in this, was totally just, like, you're, like, you're horrified, but also titillated in a way. And I distinctly remember the way that the elevator scene was talked about on Twitter which of course is the famous scene where he like kisses Carrie Mulligan and that there's a guy he's figured out is coming to attack him slash them in the elevator with them. So he kisses her and then he turns around and bashes the guy's skull in with his foot. And there was this sort of, again, like titillating quality to the way people talked about that. And it is kind of, there's a gleefulness to the way you consume that because it's beautifully shot. Like you get this music cue and they kiss and then he turns around and he's like bash it's kind and also of it's so dreamlike that i'm kind of like did the kiss even happen you know yeah it's very ambiguous yes but as the movie progresses i think the violence becomes more gruesome and less theatrical so you're then forced to be like okay i was into this and like enjoying it in a sort of like adrenaline rush way. But actually, this is just like gross and horrible. And that mirrors again, kind of what's going on with the character, I think, which is that like, he's kind of caught up in this fantasy version of like, I'm protecting this woman that I love. But actually, what he's doing is just like murdering people, which you shouldn't do. I have right? to say, speaking of titillating, the hammer scene in which Ryan hunts a man down in a strip club <laughs> and then like hammers him in this big strip club dressing room area. I was like, it was taking me out of the action somewhat there because Nicholas has, I can only describe it as having used a bunch of naked women as set dressing because there's yep. all these yep. <laughs> like strippers with enormous implants kind of sitting around the room and 
at no point has he considered that these are human beings because they are like not reacting to what's happening in front of them as if the experience of being a stripper has deadened them so much to reality that they are simply unbothered by the fact that someone is being hammered to death before their very eyes in their workplace while they're sitting around topless and one of them even like hands Ryan Gosling a cell phone from the mob boss and I was like look buddy this is just it's beyond the pale in my opinion (laughs) Yeah, that was the one moment where I was just like, oh, yes, this, I I know what this guy making this movie is like. Like, And the fact that he wanted, like, there is one other kind of female character in this movie who is part of the crime group. She's like the girlfriend of one of the shitty criminals. And she's played by Christina Hendricks. But during the casting process, Nicholas Winding Refn was very keen to hire a porn star because he thought that would be more authentic. But he couldn't find one with the right acting skills. So he hired Christina Hendricks. And it's like, great. Thanks for disrespecting (laughs) everyone involved in that story. (laughs) Yeah, he sucks. He's, He's not a great dude. Who somehow again made this great movie art is a mystery well he hired two protagonists who are absolute champions at just giving tender and lingering glances to each other and ryan gosling was just like hey uh nick can we do some more lingering here i love to linger and nicholas was like say no more i'll do the cinematography side (laughs) why don't we talk a little bit more about the style of the movie Mm -hmm. we can talk a little bit more about the cinematography um, but we must discuss the costumes and, of course, the music. <laughs> I which... mean, you say let's discuss the costumes, but I think what you actually mean is the costume. <laughs> there's a, yes, it's there's really one just costume one in this movie. Singular. <laughs> I mean, to start with the cinematography, although this all kind of folds together with the music especially, you have mentioned Michael Mann in our document, which seems very astute. There's just such a, like, 80s vibe to the film which isn't even so much directly pulling at like 80s stuff and you'll you could talk about that with the music it's sort of like a vibe and not actual like songs from the 80s but what made me really kind of smile was the opening credits like title sequence feels so much like an 80s movie or even like a music oh absolutely video it's not actually kind of the the content of the film. Like the film is, first of all, obviously set in 2011. It's a timeless story, which could basically be, you know, it could be from any point in the past hundred years of Los Angeles, but the typeface and the way kind of a lot of the nighttime lighting is shot is very reminiscent of this 1980s neo-noir, like Morgan said, Michael Mann movies. And the marketing for the film was also very 80s oriented because the posters kind of had that sheen to them and there was this real emphasis on this pink typeface of the logo and I really think that the marketing played very heavily into the way this film was viewed and how it was kind of folded into the beginning of the 1980s nostalgia craze which was like really starting to take hold in 2011 and at this point is extremely played out because we have all these very annoying things like you know Stranger Things and Guardians of the Galaxy which are just like 100% like firehose blast of nostalgia you know whereas this is actually relatively subtle and the music itself is not actually 1980s music. Yeah I mean, the 1980s are not my favorite decade for American cinema, but I think what this movie does in a really smart and enjoyable way is 
you have this, it's like a, have the sense of like smaller scale and action that is actually kind of interesting and compact and not in any kind of pastiche way referencing those movies, but just sort of, again, drawing on them in a smarter way. The presence of Albert Brooks also feels, feels right. As opposed to the kind of stuff we get now, obviously it's 10 years later, but everything is just so big and kind of bloated and boring. And especially in terms of action, there aren't very many car chases in this movie. And the violence really doesn't kick in until actually over halfway through. But it is, when there is a car chase, it is completely like edge of your seat stuff. Because as you were describing at the beginning, that like that opening sequence is so intelligently done. And then all the other stuff is too. It just feels so much more human and interesting than basically everything that we get now. And that feels very throwbacky to me. I think you enjoyed rewatching this a lot more than I did. Like I was watching it like, oh, oh yeah. this is pretty good. But I think my opinion was probably slightly colored as well by the fact that this film is so influential that I've seen like a bunch of movies that kind of tried to take parts of it since then. So even though I was recognizing that stuff like the love triangle is really well handled and also obviously the introductory sequence is incredible. I was sort of like, well, it's neo-noir, I guess, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. I texted you like half, half an hour in and was like this movie's so fucking good and you were like it's fine and I was just like what is she talking about like, get out of here this is like five out of five stars for me. I, I, I recognize I its qualities <laughs> but you talk more about the music because you will have more insightful things to say I just like have listened to this soundtrack <laughs> many times which is not helpful yeah I love <laughs> I love the soundtrack as did we all I mean also, yeah, the other, just to give a shout out to who did the jacket, it's Erin Benach. If you want to read an interview with her, there was a good one in Grantland that she did just after the film came out. This is a jacket that was built from scratch. It is not based on anything. It was inspired by Korean souvenir jackets, which is a type of sort of satiny bomber jacket with like a thing on the back. But she and Ryan Gosling have worked together in several movies and they had a very intensive collaborative process where they made like 30 of these to figure out precisely what they wanted. They were like, we definitely want it to be white. It needs to be a bomber jacket, but it has to have a turned up collar because that's very important. And most bomber jackets don't have a turned up collar. And meanwhile, the cinematographer was like, you want him to be wearing a reflective white jacket? (laughs) (laughs) So they had to like faff around with all these fabrics to find something that's not going to be like constantly looking like a mirror for the whole movie. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I had not thought about that, but I can imagine since you mentioned that they've collaborated on other stuff, which I did not know, I should mention also that the um, production designer, Beth Mickle had did half Nelson, I think. And like, they had someone else who fell through and he was like, Ryan Gosling was like, we should call it Beth. And they worked on several things together. So Ryan Gosling, you know, likes to work with the same people repeatedly. And by all accounts, I've heard from enough people that I feel confident saying this actually a nice person, which, you know, Nice to hear. We like to hear anecdotal evidence of Hollywood men having functioning professional relationships with women. (laughs) Yeah. Isn't that wild? Like, wow. But anyway, carry on with the music. Yeah. So the music is kind of synthwave, 1980s influenced, but definitely modern. This is like a style that was like really popping in 2011. 
and kind of this film absolutely propelled it to like another level because this soundtrack was so fucking popular. Um, if you want to check out some bands, Paraglove, Magic Sword and Laserhawk are three bands which I was recalling from the 2010s that I was really into. I can't remember the name of one of the others, but there's a really great um, concept album I was obsessed with directly after this movie came out, which was a fully narrated synth pop concept album about, about someone who dies in a car crash and like morphs into their own car. So this is like the correct vibe. <laughs> it starts with like a monologue, fantastic stuff. Um, but so the person they kind of initially wanted to do all the music was Johnny Jewell of the band The Chromatics. And the first song from this movie is Tick of the Clock, which then went on to be in a bunch of movies because it's it's a banger of a track and it's excellent for that introductory sequence because obviously it's all about like, you know, the clock ticking and the timing. But within the song, there's all these kind of stop and start periods so they could edit the car chase into the song in a way that meant the car is kind of pausing. It works really well. But I think the producers of the film basically were like, who are the chromatics? Can you please hire someone who's like an experienced film composer? So the actual main score is by Cliff Martinez, who's, you know, he's a he's a film score writer. He's done millions of them. And um, from what I've read of like the people who did music for this, <laughs> he's a bit puzzled by how popular it is. Because like for him, it was just <laughs> another job. Whereas for Johnny Jewell, he was like, I spent two years like making these per- two perfect pop songs for this movie, which he did because the two songs from this movie are extremely iconic. And then like a bunch of other movies were very keen to replicate that as well. And then like over the next few years, there was stuff like Stranger Things where they would find bands that were basically recreating the sound of like these 1980s techno pop bands. Um, But my favourite piece of trivia here is that Tick of the Clock and A Real Hero were both featured on the soundtrack for Taken 2 the next year because the people who made the Taken franchise were like, we got to get some of that drive energy into our garbage movie. (laughs) Laughable. Laughable stuff. Especially funny in the context of what we were discussing just a few minutes ago about how this film makes you really re-examine your attitude to the violence in the film because the whole point really of this movie, whether or not Nicholas was fully intending that, is that this is the same structure as like a million action thrillers where some guy is like protecting his woman or his daughter by inflicting violence on people. And by the end of the film, I think both of our opinions are... She's definitely better off without him. This is very sad for everyone involved. And it seems like he's really fucked up in an unmendable way. (laughs) Rather than, wow, it's so great that he's like provided for the homestead. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the end of the film, which again, I assume everyone has watched it, has this like mythical quality, right? Where he like drives off into the night, even though he should definitely be dead. Which... On the one hand, you could be like, well, he like wins in a certain way because he's still alive, but he's alone. And it's sort of like the transmutation of him into this like non-human being, right? Which is not a win. <laughs> it's just kind of depressing. Yeah. But there's also like even all the way through the movie, there's this kind of sense that he's basically on standby until he meets Irene because he's got yeah. this really eccentric life where he doesn't really talk to people. And it's not like he's socially awkward. He's literally just like on standby because he doesn't have any interests apart from cars. And he's just incredibly good at this one thing and doesn't really have an emotional life. He lives in this like depressing apartment. Yeah, he lives in a box. And he's got this 
like the Brian Cranston character is his boss at the mechanic and is also kind of like managing his stunt stuff and literally like jokes I'm using sarcastic air quotes to Irene that he's like exploiting the Gosling character but he's not joking yeah he actually he's definitely is definitely exploiting him <laughs> yeah and he is on the one hand kind of a paternal figure for him and on the other hand is controlling his life in a way that's not healthy so his life is just kind of a bummer and it makes sense that he sort of fixates on this woman, but then that also is not really a solution, right? So, yeah. I mean, the driver is just surrounded by all of these people who are either alpha males or are keen to like break into the alpha male hierarchy because the main antagonists are these two crime bosses who are basically classic mob, one of whom is played by Ron Perlman, who is very much doing his thing. And they're these big, like, tough guys. And they've got all this money to throw around and they're always intimidating people. And then Brian Cranston is an asshole, but it's really clear he's, like, not very good at crime. And he is definitely getting just, like, stomped on by these real mob bosses. Like, he doesn't have the wherewithal to win one of those no- those negotiations. Like, he doesn't have the power. And kind of the interesting thing about the driver is that he has just absented himself from that hierarchy. Like, he's not interested. Like, he's not doing power handshakes. When he interacts with these people, he barely speaks, but he's also not kind of being intimidated. So, like, he's found a way to just remove himself from that style of relationship. But then the problem is that, like, once Irene is in danger, the only way he can save her is by participating in that whole framework, which involves being violent, but he has none of the sort of normal social structures of like how to deal with that violence. So he just goes from like zero to a hundred in five seconds. And I think that observation of him kind of absenting himself is really astute, but he doesn't really participate in the like one-upsmanship, but he hasn't replaced it with anything. No, no, he's right? just living in his like cardboard box apartment. Yeah. And so then of course, when he has to try to solve a problem he defaults back to it because he hasn't like learned another way to exist. He just kind of removed it. Yeah. So it's, and that's like the other part is like when I was sort of extrapolating with my fanfic brain, the various ways this love triangle could have ended up. It's like in the future, the happy ending of this is like, what do Ryan Gosling and Carrie Mulligan do? Like, do they just look at each other for the next 20 years? Right. Cause like they just sort of do more lingering. <laughs> Well, he'd probably start talking yeah, a little just bit talk- more. I mean, he gets on well with the kid, you know. Obviously a big part of the appeal. Yeah. But yeah, great film. Highly recommend rewatching if you haven't seen it in, you know, 10 years, as I had not. The fact that this is now 10 years old was like, oh God, <laughs> I don't like that at all. And I wish Ryan Gosling would do some good films. Look, if you don't like La La Land, that's your own fault. Well, I tweeted, I was like, when will he do another good movie? It's been so long. And uh, Tim Roby, the great film critic at The Telegraph, chided me, I mean, very politely. But uh, I have not seen First Man, which was the follow-up to La La Land that um, Damien Chazelle did. Yeah, I also didn't see it because it had the words Damien Chazelle on it. So apparently it's very good. We're both very judgmental. (laughs) Yeah, so I am going to watch that soon. I mean, I would love for it to be good. I love Ryan Gosling and I like space. Yeah, I I too like space. It's just the Damien Chazelle thing. So I, I will endeavor to open my mind but yeah another movie like this or like of this quality would be 
would be very exciting. Yeah, think- it was interesting that he immediately followed this up with The Place Beyond the Pines, which is clearly kind of trying to replicate that, but it didn't work. Like, that was a weird one, because it was one of these films that was kind of separated into three stories, and the Ryan Gosling story was great, and then they just, like, switched on to some other guy, and I was like, who the fuck's this? I don't care about this guy. Like, <laughs> Well, Bradley Cooper gets the middle part, and his part is fine. And then the real problem is when they switch to the teenage Oh, yeah, that was it. Like, they switched to, like, some guy I really didn't care about for the final third. Real bad. <laughs> yeah. But at least that's, like, an interesting swing. Yeah. I feel like he's done a lot of kind of studio stuff in the past five-plus years that has not worked. I mean, he's also had children, but it's not like he hasn't made movies. It's just that a lot of them have been kind of unexciting. But I think he's so unbelievably talented. So next week, we will finally catching up with one of the big big movie stories of the year for for nerds like us which is the green knight i'm very excited i have managed to remain completely unspoiled i have not read a review i don't know what happens apart from there's a green knight and obviously you know the story of the green knight (laughs) have you read the poem yeah yeah i read it in college i'm gonna read it again before our episode i didn't remember it super well before seeing the movie i mean it's another classic tale in the genre of there's some weird guy it's very true it's one of the pinnacles of the weird weird guy guy. subgenre. yeah so we will be have lots of discussion of you know medieval poetry next week in a very different zone from the movie drive but that will be very fun and then coming up we also have the tv show the north water if you like Arctic mishaps and coverage of the New York and London film festivals, which I have started going to movies for, and you will be doing that soon. Last night I saw Titan, which was wild. Oh my God, I can't Just wait. Just a wild oh, Morgan, movie. I can't wait. Just your reaction is making me doubly excited for a film I was already very scared in a good way to see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we did Raw recently the director's previous film and i respected but didn't like that very much and so my expectations for this one were like i'm sure this will be interesting but i'm not like looking i mean i didn't think i personally was gonna like love it and it was great so we will discuss that and many other films more in the coming weeks if you would like to request a movie for us to discuss or would like to listen to a bonus episode that we have recently put up about what we read this summer. You can do that at patreon.com slash overinvested podcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor, and you can find me on YouTube at behind the seams. And you can find me on Twitter and letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvested pod. Our Tumblr is overinvested podcast and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.